0: Welcome to Unbalanced.mn. I'm Logan Carroll, and I am joined by my co-host, Miles Bragg. Hello. We are here to talk about... (laughs) What the fuck is happening on the right wing of America today? How are you today, Miles?
1: I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I'm keeping an eye on all these things. The weather is getting a little bit warmer here in the Midwest, and mm-hmm. not a moment too soon.
0: I did read something the other day that uh, if climate change continues unabated at the rate it is now, the Northern Hemisphere, or North America, will have six months of summer by the end of the century. So... Could, Sounds good. Could have had a little bit longer of a spring, but uh, you know,
1: we don't get seasons here anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, we got a really cool show for you. We have conversations with three organizers who were active in the Twin Cities in, from the '80s to the early 2000s. Uh, two of them were anti-fascist, anti-racist uh, organizers, and the third was a neo-Nazi organizer. Uh, their stories are really fascinating and very complimentary. To one another, the former neo-Nazi who spoke to us for this episode is a man named Jeff Scoop. Who uh, there is some controversy surrounding his leaving the movement, which uh, we're going to talk about later in the episode. But on the whole, uh, this is uh, something I'm really excited about. This particular topic has been covered several times. Uh, it's the Baldies is the name of the group. Uh, that morphed into or founded Anti-Racist Action, and they were the subject of a really brilliant hour-long Radio K documentary, as well as a subject of an episode by Jake Verdon and his podcast, Money, Power, Land, Solidarity. So this is the first time, though, that the, (laughs) the fascist point of view has been part of that story. So I think we've got an admirable contribution to the genre.
1: Amen. Yeah. Like you said, this story is one that's been covered... A lot in recent years, but I think we got a pretty different take on it. Let's talk about ARA and the Ballies and the NSM.
0: Well, before we do that, I know you put in a little bit of work to prep some news stories
1: for us, Miles. Oh yes, I
2: forgot. I guess I don't need help care.
3: another
1: The news as usual Many of our news items come from the blog This Week in Fascism over at itsgoingdown.org. Please like those folks on social media and support their LibraPay so that they can keep doing this vital work. First story is White Lives Matter protests planned across the country. The Institute for Research and Education on Human Rights has been tracking telegram channels attempting to plan White Lives Matter protests across the country for this Sunday the 11th. The IREHR reports that the event flyers, which feature artwork lifted from the neo-Nazi group Vanguard America, popped up on Telegram on March 25th, and the events themselves are set for April 11th in city centers, and so far there are 16 Telegram groups representing different cities. One announcement for the event declared quote, it's time to take a stand against the anti-white mob, against the anti-white media, against the anti-white government, and against the anti-white education system. Popular themes that have come up on the event pages include the myth of white genocide, Islamophobia, voter integrity that was the primary motivator behind the Stop the Steal protests, opposing Black Lives Matter, and unabashed anti-Semitism. Many of the channels are filled with videos featuring neo-Nazi leaders like George Lincoln Rockwell and references to various groups ranging from Patriot Front to the Proud Boys. This has led to concerns of growing crossover between Trumpian nationalist groups like the Proud Boys and more outright white nationalist and neo-Nazi organizations. Now for my commentary, there has been some information suggesting that a White Lives Matter rally could happen here at the state capitol in St. Paul. While we are not expecting tons and tons of attendees, maybe 10 at best, these 10 could still serve as the next core for hardcore white supremacist organizing in the Twin Cities. What do you make of that?
0: You know, one of the main themes that came out of talking about with the anti-fascist organizers that we're going to talk to later was that there, there was a lot of criticism levied at them or even just like incredulity, like... Who gives a fuck? It's, it's 10 neo-Nazis. Why, why, why are you going to a show to bash their heads? The, and then also, <laughs> they told me they felt very vindicated the lesson they've taken away from the last few years and especially from the storming of the Capitol is that it's not a good idea to let violent extremists organize in your city. And all organizing efforts start small. Mm-hmm. So w- One of my big takeaways from reporting on this is that we shouldn't brush it off or treat it like it's no big deal since, it's, since we're only expecting 10 people to show up. I do appreciate you tracking this stuff in the Twin Cities. Appreciate that perspective you bring.
1: Yeah. Uh, my next news item is an update on the Hold the Line slash Stop the Steel crowd here in MN. Known on Facebook as Hold the Line MN, this small but spirited group of free-thinking patriots has quickly become known across the metro as a far-right big tent group not only organizing to decry Biden winning the popular vote, but also to take up every other right wing grievance under the sun, including but not limited to anti anti fascism. Of course, anti lockdown, anti mask, anti vaccine in response to COVID, anti gun control, anti wokeness and anti BLM. It goes on and on. At the beginning, the Facebook page said that they were founded and headed by three women, Becky Strohmeyer, Michelle Justin and Emily Hartigan. Now, Justin, I know the least about. Hartigan claims to be a Marine veteran from Shoreview. She is the president of Born to Ride for 45 MN, vice president of Bikers for 45, and the former director of operations for right wing Senate candidate, Jason Lewis. Becky Strohmeyer from Bloomington picks up a bulk of the workload. Now, when I say big tent, or pan far right, I mean that they, ostensibly Republicans, brazenly organize alongside Proud Boys, Oathkeeper militia types, guys like Chad Rothdahl, who we talked about in a previous episode, potentially Patriot Front fascists, and so on. They've started they started organizing weekly rallies outside the Governor's mansion in Saint Paul immediately after the election, these went on for a number of weeks until local anti-fascist organizing pressured them to shift tactics. Now it appears that they're using that energy to turn themselves into a nonprofit 501 501c3. They've been putting on events fairly often across different parts of Minnesota and are clearly trying and currently doing well at building a network that will continue to support Trump, the far right writ large, and their objectively anti-democratic goals. One of the most recent events was a quote-unquote talent show. The online flyer hyping the event reads, quote, come dressed as your favorite hero or villain, barbecue, drinks, games. In each of the corners of the flyer are little stars with the co-sponsors' names appearing inside each, including Hold the Line, MN, Mask Off, Minnesota, a COVID denialist group, Patriot Party, Minnesota, ostensibly a far-right political party yet to really get off the ground, And Minnesota Awakening, a Minnesota-based QAnon telegram channel. Patriot Party Minnesota went on to post in their telegram that the talent show was a smashing success. They met many new people, they said, and that it was even attended by the mayor of South St. Paul, James Francis. She gets a yikes from me, dog.
0: Any confirmation on that? I mean, photos of him or anything like that? Or is it just...
1: Just the, the report from the party itself. Yeah.
0: I got a couple ideas, got a couple of things that, that that leapt out to me. Spin. Um part of my brain hears the lists of the sponsoring people, um, and I think, well of course, that makes sense. But but the other part is that like how wildly disparate these different aims are and yet how clearly they go hand in hand, like from the election fraud bullshit, to the COVID denial bullshit to the Minnesota QAnon Awakening bullshit, to Patriot Party, which I assume is anti-government, there's a worldview at play here. I appreciate that you th- said the theme, heroes and villains, because, again, that just sounds wacky and silly and goofy, but it's very manichaean mm. It has this, like, real dividing the world into good and evil which is like the heart of QAnon, <laughs> yeah. which is the heart of the stop the steal bullshit, the hold the line bullshit, which is the heart of the COVID denial bullshit, or maybe not the heart of that one, but it's it's definitely a part of it that there's this evil, this conspiracy of evil people who want to take away your freedom. Right. It's not just us versus them. It's they are evil. Yeah,
1: and it's black and white. It's always devoid of nuance, you know.
0: Yeah, and it it builds to a justification of violence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the other question I had listening to that, what what talents were on display? Do we know any videos?
1: Not that I saw. No. 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 Uh, I'm, I'm sure there was plenty. I'm sure it wasn't a talentless talent show.
0: I really hope James Francis was demonstrating his pasty twirling.
1: That just. <laughs> See who could rant the hardest or the longest in their truck. Twerk off. Who's got the biggest flag? (laughs) All right. Well, that brings me to my last item. The Salem, Oregon Caravan. Right-wingers and anti-fascists clashed in Salem, Oregon last Sunday, March 28th, as a small caravan of Proud Boys and Trump supporters were met by roughly 200 counter-demonstrators at the state capitol. The right-wing Freedom Rally, planned for that day, was a car caravan that began in Sandy, Oregon, and ended at the Capitol. Folks from Portland and the surrounding areas stood in solidarity with the anti-fascist and anti-racist protesters of Salem, resulting in an impressive turnout against the insurgent far-right. Video from Ray on Twitter shows a truck attempting to plow through a crowd of anti-fascist protesters, nearly hitting one. The truck was a part of the pro-Trump convoy. At one point, a right-wing demonstrator drew a handgun on a group of anti-fascists after his car was damaged. The man was arrested and later released. There is video that at Seattle YLF posted that shows him drawing the firearm and pointing it in the direction where anti-fascist demonstrators were standing only seconds prior. Um, Portland has seen these caravans roll up before sometimes they rally several hundred pickup trucks and they're all driving into one place these folks are armed many times they're, they've shot out the windows at protesters you know they've tried running through crowds you know a few years ago you never needed to worry about vehicles coming through a protest since Charlottesville it's almost become commonplace these tactics we need to be aware of what they're doing what they're attempting to do you know (laughs) if they're talking about it this is a freedom rally where they're rolling up on people at a capital and trying to run through the crowd or pointing guns out the window and things like that what type of freedom are they looking for you know what i mean freedom to murder
0: you seen that movie green room Mm -mm. oh my god man it is about this like punk band from somewhere on the east coast they're doing a cross-country tour and they're like driving through the Pacific Northwest. They have like no gas money. So this guy goes like, you could play at this club. It's like out in the woods. So they go out there and it's a um, it's a neo-Nazi compound. Yikes. And so then they um, accidentally witness a murder in the green room. And then they wind up getting locked in there. And then it's just like, it's just like this siege of the neo-Nazis trying to just like fucking murder them. Whoa. One of the neo-Nazis like has trained Rottweilers. It's just, it's, it's so intense. It's such a good movie.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna have to look this up and
0: watch <laughs> it. So good, I'm prepared to give it unilaterally. Give it this podcast's seal of approval.
1: That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's it for the news. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: we did that in record time.
0: Yes, we did.
2: <laughs> I'm mistaken for yourself You ain't hard, good This is spiky hair But the jacks fill lips inside your head Nazi punks, nasty punks, nasty punks, fuck off Nazi punks, nasty punks, nasty punks, fuck off come the fight, get out of here You ain't no better than about We ain't got to leave too We ain't got to lay down again Nasty punks, nasty punks, nasty punks, fuck off Nasty punks, nasty punks, nasty punks, fuck off
0: So we're going to talk to Jeff Scoop, Uh, he was the chair of the National Socialist Movement and the National Socialist Movement is the largest neo-Nazi group in the United States. He left the movement in January of
1: 2019, which has just so happened to coincide with being hit with potential legal consequences for his role in the Charlottesville rally which led to the death of Heather Heyer and the injury of dozens of others in 2017. People, especially in the anti-fascist community, anti-racist community, are extremely skeptical of Jeff at this point. Unite the Right was supposed to be the coming out party for American
0: fascism. That was supposed to be them making it okay to be a fascist in public again. And it blew up and then Jeff scoop left the movement. Now, I personally, trust him, I believe him, but it doesn't matter what either of us think or feel. He was the leader of the National Socialist Movement for three decades.
1: And when you've been one of the preeminent Nazis in America for 25 plus years, it's going to take more than renouncing the movement, quote unquote, in order to earn that trust back from me or folks like me. But
0: the focus of this interview is the historical perspectives that he brings
1: through his experience. Mm -hmm. For more on that Charlottesville lawsuit, please check out integrityfirstforamerica.org. They've been doing a great job covering it. They have all the defendants listed. They have all the major updates in the court that have come out. So keep an eye out for that stuff.
4: Now I feel for you right
0: now I'm your project. Everything I love now I see. I'm confident saying that the traditional story of race in America is that racism was a southern problem, as opposed by the valiant and equanimous North. Uh, but I'm equally confident saying that white supremacism is an integral part of the Minnesota story. Uh, the centuries-long slow burn of broken treaties and white encroachment on Dakota land erupted in the Dakota War of 1862. Now, many people know about the mass hanging in Mankato, but something I didn't is that after the war, Governor Ramsey issued a bounty for the scalps of male Dakota and forced the women, children, and elderly into what today we would call a concentration camp for the winter of 1862 to 63. 300 people died now we can skip forward 60 years late winter through early autumn of 1919 was called the red summer because of white supremacist terrorism and racial riots that took place in more than three dozen cities across the united states i'm just reading straight from wikipedia because i'm that kind of journalist (laughs) and that was sort of the state of race relations in the united states in june of 1920 when a mob of white people lynched three young black men in duluth minnesota for allegedly raping a woman this is ethel ray nance speaking about the lynching in 1974 with staff of the black history project
5: this particular day i went to the post office to get the pick up the mail as we always did after the limited train came in and no one spoke to me Was this is in Mooslake and I thought it was queer because by this time I'd been there, I'd been there over a year and people had a way of saying good morning and when I got to the post office the postmaster would joke about the amount of mail I got personally because I'd been on this trip and there were a lot of people writing me and I didn't know what it was. I went back to the office and, and uh, uh, my boss was on the phone with Duluth and he swung around and he he said uh, there's terrible trouble in Duluth they're calling out the National Guard and I asked why and he said there's a race riot and I couldn't imagine that because knowing the Negroes in Duluth are not that militant sort Mm -hmm. but then he said then they've they've lynched some Negroes well I couldn't reach uh, I couldn't reach uh, my folks by phone and so I went through that. Then I, then I realized what it was, you know, the animosity in the town. But the feeling, uh, they, they, their reaction seemed to be that they, they would like to have been in on, on, the, uh, on the lynching party.
6: Did your parents relate to you, any of the particulars of things that occurred?
5: My father was furious about Of course, he was very upset, particularly because um, it would happen about four blocks from our home, outside the uh, Shrine Temple. And he walked down, as he walked down the hill that next morning to work, the bodies had been cut down and were lying there at the foot of the telegraph post. And uh, there was a circus in town, and 14 Negroes were taken off a train that was ready to pull out with all the circus paraphernalia late that night. And this white girl claimed that she had been raped by 14 Negroes. And she's supposed to have identified these four. They had a kangaroo court. The uh, chief of police was out of town, the mayor was out of town. And I understand that they, they got their necktie party up by parading up and down the, the main, main street. No one stopped them. No one seemed to.
0: There's a few more gems from our state history. In 1946 and again in 1959, Minneapolis was labeled on two separate occasions by two different writers the anti-Semitism capital of the world.
1: Well, that leads nicely into our topic on the Silver Shirts in Minnesota, which was just before that, in the interwar period in the 1930s. German and Italian fascism was on the upswing, scoring military and political victories that would disrupt the globe. A sizable chunk of that ideology landed here in Minnesota. It was called the Silver Shirts, and it was one of America's first classically fascist organizations. Its leader, William Dudley Pelley, openly promoted Hitlerism and worked to suppress opposition to the National Socialist or Nazi Party. They promoted Manifest Destiny and longed for the return to the days of chattel slavery. Started the day after Hitler took over as Chancellor in 1933, the Silver Shirt Legion grew to about 15,000 members and around 100,000 supporters primarily in the Midwest and on the West Coast at its peak. The Silver Shirts colluded with businessmen, lawyers, and government officials. They worked to stoke fear-mongering and racial hatred, pull the farmer labor rights into the Republican Party, and to organize and hire thugs to suppress union organization. Only because of the organized resistance of the Jewish Anti-Defamation Council of Minnesota, Teamsters Local 544, Activist Ray Rainbolt and the Union Defense Guard were the silver shirts in their meetings violently disrupted and smashed. Their aesthetics and rhetoric, however, survived and still can be seen mirrored in American fascist movements to this day.
0: The big three of American racism anti native, anti black, anti semitism. Those are the big three, right? I mean, yeah. So I don't want to like simplify our history, like Minnesota owes its founding and development to the intersection of many currents of history and many personalities, and that there's a lot of good in the history. But Minnesota was founded on explicitly white supremacist ideals. And the ruling common sense is grounded in those ideals, like even as it rejects explicit white supremacism. I mean, that's just, it's painful, but it's true. Mm -hmm. Now, there is, of course, like an ongoing project to re-legitimize explicit white supremacism. And that is our subject for today. Now, one of the sites of violence during the quote-unquote red summer of 1919 was Bloomington, Illinois, Hmm. which was the early home of George Lincoln Rockwell, who had been born a year before that in 1918. Now, uh, do you know much about Rockwell? A little bit. So here's a clip of Rockwell being interviewed in 1966 before he gave a speech at a university.
7: Mr. Rockwell, there are an awful lot of people out there who seem to be laughing and jeering, and there seem to be about twice as many people as the hall will hold. You find this true wherever you speak. I always draw usually the biggest crowds they've ever had, and usually the very people that shout prejudice the loudest against me prejudge my speech by jeering and shouting before they've given me a chance to be heard. And uh, what is your platform, uh, whether you, you have I campaigned for office, haven't yes, you, under- I ran for governor last month in Virginia, and uh, the main thing that we are fighting for is the preservation of the white race. We think the white race is what has made possible the American Constitutional Republic, which we think is the greatest form of government in the world. What do you think about the present policies the administration is uh, having in regard to the colored people? Well, I think the, it's insane. I think that the policy has brought on chaos and almost revolution in this country. And instead of, of putting on the brakes, we're adding more of what caused the trouble in the first place. Now, if we um, if, if we want white supremacy, what will we do with all the colored people in this country? Will we? Take them well, in another country, or let one? me say this. in the Congo, they have black supremacy. There's no question about it. A white person uh, doesn't hold office. They wouldn't tolerate a white president. Uh, this country is a white country and it has the right to remain white. We don't believe that the colored people should be pushed around, but they certainly should stop pushing the white people around.
0: Rockwell is one of the defining figures of American white supremacy and fascism. He founded the American Nazi Party in 1959. He coined the phrase "white power." He was an early inspiration for David Duke. He actually played a role in shaping the modern white supremacist coalition. He forged alliances between his group, which was very pro Hitler and German inflected, and with the totally all American KKK. And Rockwell was an avowed atheist, but forged an alliance with the Christian identity movement. Like, right? Like, Rockwell was not a Minnesotan. Hmm. Um, so why are we talking about him? Because our main story begins with his death. He was shot uh, outside a laundromat in 1968 by one of his lieutenants.
1: Oh no. One of his own? You don't say. Who,
0: who was paroled after like eight years? And later said, I should have been marching with the civil rights people.
1: Oh. Whatever,
0: for whatever that's worth. For whatever that's worth. Yeah. Okay, so that brings us to...
1: Commander Jeff.
0: Commander Jeff. But our cast of characters is going to expand to include the other side of the fight.
3: You know, the NSM always saw itself as the continuation of commander george lincoln rockwell's original nazi party so and that was one of the things at the time when i was uh, still an extremist was one of the things that drew me specifically to that organization because i did look at a lot of the other organizations that were around at the time and i wanted something that had that historical connection back in the 70s after Commander Rockwell had been assassinated, there was a lot of uh, splintering in the movement and there was different groups that were formed. And the NSM formed right during that time period, 73, 74, right around that time by Bob Brannan. It actually formed in Cincinnati, Ohio and and out there. And then it moved. It was in Oklahoma for a while. Cliff Harrington brought it to Minnesota in late 80s, I'm thinking. That's where I found the organization. Brandon and Cliff Harrington were members of Commander Rockwell's American Nazi Party. Basically, I mean, the American Nazi Party and the NSM, you know, the, the ultimate goal was to have a white homeland or an all-white country.
8: Well, my name is Jay I was a part of an anti-racist skinhead group called the Baldies back in the 80s. My parents were hippies. They marched in rallies back in the 60s and my dad's family was treated like shit because their mom was white and they were mixed kids and they had to live in every fucking shithole like building or apartment or home that their their mom could find because she was a single mother with kids that were mixed race. I have native black and white basically. I think it's just one of those things that just... Is inher- You know, it's like, you know, as a young native person, you know how natives are treated in this country and what poverty is and how violent that whole situation is. As we got older and we got into the punk scene, like, um, and then we got into the skinhead culture and we liked that and we started our own little crew. The Baldies were basically a group of friends that liked the skinhead culture. Before it became trendy, I want to say, like um, before it got Nazi skinheads. But the whole culture is rooted in black music, ska, soul, old soul music from the late 60s and even earlier on. We're just having fun being our little clique, you know? Yeah, yeah this was probably like 83, 83. Back then, It was dangerous. If you were a punk, it was almost uh, like a right for people to try to kick your ass. So, like, you would just have random, like, metalhead kids or jocks or whoever. Because you were an outcast. You were some fucking misfit piece of shit kid. You know, it's like back then it was shocking to see people with, like, pierced ears and nose and crazy hair and, like, basically giving. The system, the middle finger by just looking different. This, I mean, the punk scene was great. You know, you had all these different kids, gay, straight, all different groups of people that were considered outcasts hanging out and going to these shows and doing stuff.
3: For me, the fascination started from a very young age because my uh, my grandfather and my great uncles fought in the Third Reich. So when I was looking for an organization, my goal was to find something that was the closest to the Third Reich, basically, here in, in America. Um, I have to preface that by saying it wasn't something that they, my parents especially, were not pro-national socialist or anything like that. In fact, it, they were very much against it you know, I was out of the home by 17, 18 years old. So it wasn't, I don't know that what, if, if anything that had to do with it. By the time I joined in the early nineties, the organization was quite small. Uh Um, you know, there was the chapter in Minnesota, there was a few members scattered in other States and that was about it. And one of the first things that, uh, Cliff Harrington had showed us was what he called the one man, uh, Walking Picket, uh-huh. and uh, we went down to the federal building there in uh, downtown Minneapolis. It's near where the main post office is. I, I can't remember the exact street, but may, you're probably familiar with the the building. Yeah. And back then, the NSM was wearing the original, you know, the old school Nazi Party uh, sure. uniforms, the brown shirts and all that that uh, Rockwell yeah. had worn. It was three of us, I think that had went down there. And he says, I'm going to show you the one man protest. So you guys can do this. I said, well, why do a one man protest when there's three of us Uh here? And, and he says, because I'm, it's, I'm trying to teach you something. I'm trying to show you how this works, that one person, one person alone can do, can do something like this. And this is how we, you know, get started. This is how we get started building, building the the ranks and the streets and, and so on and so forth. So I said, well, what happens if someone attacks you? You're, you're flying a swastika flag in downtown Minneapolis. You know, we just assumed there'd probably be some kind of, uh, trouble. And he says, you don't do nothing, just film it. Cause we had a camera. So, <clears throat> um, as soon as he walked away, you know, I said to the other guy that was there with me, I said, if he gets attacked, orders or not, you know, we're going to, you know, get involved cause we're not going to allow him to get beat up in the street so but there was no violence but uh he showed us the one-man picket and that was something you know that uh, you know later on we would teach to other people
8: as time went on then you had races start popping up like the hammer skins from atlanta a white power group started in saint east saint paul and so shit had to happen You know, we've been scrapping for most of our lives, anyways. For us to get like some payback on some low level dickheads, you know, at that point in time wasn't a fucking problem. You know, it's like, yo, we know the system is rigged against us. We had friends getting jumped by fucking Minneapolis police officers and called nigger lovers. And you're fucking with the biggest gang in the city, the Minneapolis Police Department. You know, that shit was real.
6: Trina Knudsen, and I'm from South Minneapolis. Like my parents were in the Communist Party. Uh, I had an older brother who was also an activist. So, uh, so I learned very early about race and class dynamics. And my brother had been part of the Baldies. Of course, I was like proud of my brother, and I knew Jay and like all those other guys too. And I always. When I was like a little younger and i go to Uptown, Uptown was was way different and way less like yuppified. It was actually a place that young people hung out. It was basically like I had like a bunch of big brothers, like the Baldies were all my big brothers and no one was gonna mess with me. When I was probably like 15 or 16, I spent the summer in Portland, Oregon, working against this anti-gay ballot initiative. Here I am, this is probably like 1992 or 1993 in Portland, Oregon and I'm just like doing campaign work like downtown yeah. on the street every day wearing a flight jacket with ARA patches I didn't have a shaved head I probably wore boots yeah. and there was like a huge Nazi skinhead population in Portland at that time so I started being like, harassed and attacked like weekly. for me that was like and, but I like, didn't actually encounter Nazis in Minneapolis. And then mm-hmm. I was spending a summer in Portland where there's tons of Nazi skinheads. And I had no big brothers to protect me that I figured out, or I felt motivated to join anti-racist
3: action and, and to work against a fascist street presence in Uh Back then, you know, it was sort of like the skinhead scene. So we were wearing flight jackets with patches and stuff like that, passing out leaflets. And that could do... Two different things. Some people would start a conversation and be like, "Oh wow, where did you get that?" Or the opposite, "F you, Nazi, blah blah blah," um, and then you might get into an altercation or or something like that. But um, we were very visible back in in uh, those days, so it was a lot of leafleting, a lot of passing out flyers. There was some organizations that had newspapers back then, like actual print newspapers so you could wrap up flyers in the newspapers and throw them out onto people's lawns and and things like that so we did a lot of that too some of those flyers went back some I think Cliff had designed in the in the old days some were reprints from the Rockwell days and then we created our own later but at first I didn't have the the people with all those technical skills. I was actually speaking to a reporter, I think it was probably about a year or so ago, um, since I've been out of the movement, and uh, I was saying, well, you know, a lot of the flyers we had weren't that terribly racist. He says, do you have any old leaflets from before? I said, yeah, I had to go search and find them. But I, I went and I searched and started seeing those old leaflets, and then I remembered like how bad some of them uh, and hateful, some of them really were. Of course, there was general ones that would had like a guy with a uniform and an armband on with a rifle, and it said "armed people are free people." But then there was some really, really bad ones. I mean, there was one with like an oven on it and a, and a, a joke about uh, six million Jews. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was something I remember there being like an, a picture of an oven on one. And there was another one that had a historical picture of a a black man chained to a, a tree. And, uh, it said, uh, this, uh, N word raped a white woman. He's not eligible for parole. I had told myself for so long that the organization wasn't really hateful, that it wasn't really hateful stuff. Um, and then when you see that, it, it, it it's like getting kicked in the chest or, or slapped in the face. And oh, yes, it was. Yes, it was hateful, really hateful. Sometimes we would pass out those really radical ones. And then other times, like the armed people are free people. One, we would go to like gun shows or militaria shows and pass out stuff there. While I was researching some of that from the
0: intro, I stumbled on the following clip which is from April 2001. It's cut down quite a bit. Hello
4: and welcome to the studios of SPNN for the St. Paul Forum. My name is Rachel Holbrook alwyn So I'd like to introduce our guests tonight. We have Rabbi Asher Asher Gold, and also the executive director of the Jewish Community Relations Council, Stephen Silverfarb. And I really Good appreciate evening. you coming this evening as well. Stephen, what kind of issues do you see, specifically in our neighborhoods in St. Paul? I mean, Do you see anti-Semitism as, a, as an issue in this, in this city?
2: Well, I think we see anti-Semitism and racism as continuing issues that we have to face as a community in St. Paul, in the metro area, and really in, in the state. It ranges from what appears to be relatively innocuous leafleting. Of course, some of those leaflets that are spread about are horrible, threatening, and certainly offensive and insulting. Uh, and sometimes we see activity that rain, runs all the way to arson mm-hmm. at uh, Rabbi Zangel's synagogue. So it really does run the gamut. There have been parts of the country where uh, anti Semitic conduct has uh, manifested itself in deadly behavior at the LA. Jewish Community Center resulted in, in, in shootings. So you never really know. The problem, when I mean, people have hate in their heart, will it take the form of leaflets or will it take the form of something more violent? Mm-hmm. You just don't know.
4: How widespread do you think it is? In, well, in, in, let's, let's talk specifically St. Paul. I mean, wh- wh- what kinds of specific issues are you seeing or what kind of calls do you get?
2: We get mostly calls related to graffiti, vandalism, okay. and leafleting often uh, the people who would call the JCRC are Jewish individuals who would see an anti-Semitic leaflet. That doesn't mean that there aren't hate groups who are leafleting in Hispanic neighborhoods or African-American neighborhoods that we just don't know about. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the police and others, are. it's reported to the police, so they're able to track it maybe.
4: Okay, thank you. We're out of time. I want to thank you both for joining us. I'm Rachel holbrook Alwin Thanks for watching.
3: But um, as far as the, the political ideology and you know the white homeland was the, was the main goal, there was these uh, fantasies that people would have about there's going to be a race war, there's going to be a collapse in the government, a civil war preparation. People were preparing for stuff like that. Uh, when the Oklahoma City bombing happened. You know, um, we got super paranoid at the time in, in the movement and thought, well, the government's going to come and try to round us all up. So everybody was buying ammunition and things like that. So it was just absolutely fueled by fear. We didn't see it that way back then. If someone would have told me, oh, you're only involved in this because you're afraid, they would have probably got, you know, hit or, you know, like, it's like no, we're not afraid of nothing. It, it, you know, that's, uh, but that is a driving factor and we knew that so we would say well hey all these black people all these mexicans are here and they're taking your jobs that's why you're not making a living it's the jews fault i was hyper active in at, at the time i mean i was i was in south st paul st paul area and recruiting quite a few different people and and leading street actions and things like that around that time so Cliff Harrington, um, he was going to retire. He was, he was done leading the organization and he had said to me, um, I'd like you to take over the organization. I just remember at the time being really shocked and thinking, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? But I felt driven by you know, the ideology, purpose, duty, all that sort of thing, so I took it on
8: I know that ARA started, like, locally, and I think in other cities, too, they started doing this thing called Cop Watch. The cops did not like that. (laughs) (laughs) We're basically telling, you know, telling people what their rights rights were when cops would pull you over or you could, you know, say, hey, look, you can film them. It was pretty radical for a Mm. bunch of kids. And the cops fucking hated ARA, you know. It was middle of the day. Uh, we were right by the Uptown Theater there. There should be a coffee shop on the corner. The Minneapolis police rolled up, and there's like 15 of us and we was like, Move on, move on, you know, stop lording, blah, blah, blah. And then they grabbed this one kid. If you knew, if you were from the city, you knew this kid sucked out because he wasn't from the city. They put him in the cop car and were like, Hey, what the fuck, dude? He didn't do anything. And they basically scared the shit out of him. Like, you know, you guys are fucking nigger lovers. And once they let him out, he was scared shitless. You know, like he kind of faded out a little bit after that. This is the thing. It's it's like not all the cops were like that, right? You had the asshole cops that you usually knew about by name. And then you had the other cops that were just being cops. It was the ones that that were white supremacists in the first place, those are the ones that would try to catch you. And they caught some people, you know, and they assaulted them and threatened them. And (laughs) I don't know. I can't remember who started it. The cop watch thing. I know it was, I just remember seeing the stickers around town, like on polls and stuff. But uh, like by the middle nineties, I was living my life. I was doing other stuff. So I really wasn't, paying too much attention to that after that, it went on its own way and did its own thing.
3: A lot of times with the, with the on the far right, we would get into physical altercations at demonstrations and things like that. But um, we had rules in place where we couldn't just go and attack someone, not because it was wrong, but because we knew it was bad for the organization. If I break it down into like, the skinhead days in the early nineties and things like that. Sure. There was times where people are out just strictly looking for fights or going to shows to fight. Um, but more in the political context, um, of like violence at events and rallies and things like that. We always waited to get attacked. The way the movement looked at it was if there was violence, we would be the ones getting in trouble. So we made sure we were never the ones to hit first.
6: There's a show at First Avenue that we potentially thought that Nazis might attend. We would usually go there in a crew. Like At that time, in First Avenue wouldn't probably look like a Nazi hardcore band, but there were hardcore bands that we knew that Nazis liked. And occasionally, neo-Nazis would try to organize their own shows or events. We would uh, organize to shut them down.
3: There was like, um, you know, concerts, bands, you know, white power bands. And, um, a lot of times they were hosted at bars and clubs and things like that, where the hosts or the owners of the clubs didn't really know what was, who was coming. You didn't say, oh, Hey, the NSM is coming to book a show or, or the Hammerskins are booking a show. You just didn't do that. It was always like, well, this is John's wedding party or, you know, something, something, uh, uh, like that, where it was more low-key.
6: Yeah, so they would try to be sneaky. And then we would just have, like, people all over the Twin Cities would call us, people either in the music scene or people who worked at bars. Again, this was, like, before social networking and all that. So, you know, someone would call someone and say, hey, Nazis like to hang out here, or "I think the Nazis are planning some kind of show, and then we would show up.
3: And then... um Because a lot of times when shows were found out, there would be threats and things like that coming from the other side.
6: Anything from, you know, shouting at them, yelling at them, basically trying to make them leave. Definitely sometimes things would get physical, mostly, I don't know, you know, all different kinds of things would happen.
3: Yeah, I mean, the the street fighting and, and all that between the left and the right has gone on as long as is uh, forever. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I had been involved in things like that as well.
6: The Baldies did, like, a pretty good job of kicking the Nazis out of Minneapolis. <laughs> like, they really did. It was like we had to track them down, we had, and we had to be... And we tried to be really vigilant about, like I said, keeping them out of, like, First Avenue in downtown Minneapolis. I don't think they ever like in the late 90s tried to come to South Minneapolis and then sometimes they would lurk around in like parts of St. Paul and we'd have to go find them but I think at some point we were like "Okay, okay maybe they haven't completely disappeared but we've pushed them out of our territories and now let's look at like structural racism. A lot of people of color in Minneapolis like had never seen a Nazi and like We're sort of like, what are you worried about Nazis for? Like, we're worried about police brutality. Like, we're worried about, like, being able to rent houses. So I think it was just, like, an evolution of let's organize against that.
3: The average member, especially back then, was your working class and poor. I remember even doing my own budget, and I remember budgeting, like, $20 for movies or entertainment. Like, that was it. And and then at the end of it, it was like, oh, minus forty dollars um, just after the bills. Well, let's chuck out that twenty bucks for entertainment because we're not making it. And and that's how it was. And a lot of people still in America are struggling like that, where they're like a wage slave. Basically, you're just working to survive. The movement in particular blamed people. We were really wise, I guess, in the sense of what what are hot button issues what things should we be hitting on? You know, like there was at some point where it was like, why are we passing out anti-communist stuff, right? It, like those seemed out of touch. And now it's interesting now, in we're in 2021, but or in 2020, the last couple of years, everybody's talking about communism again. We quit using that stuff because it wasn't uh, an issue anymore. We were hitting on hot button issues like illegal immigration. Um, we would go into different communities, like say there was a, a racially motivated crime of some sort. I have one example right off the top of my head. Um, in Kansas, they had the Carr brothers story where it was this brutal murder. Uh, these two brothers, the Carr brothers, murdered a bunch of uh, young white people. We took advantage of that situation to build on racial tensions in, in the area. I remember standing at the state, on the state capitol steps in Topeka holding a noose basically saying that we were coming for the Carr brothers So, um, doing that was considered noble, honorable, like it was a good thing. We were, we were patriots and I'm saying this is how we thought. I'm not saying that we were patriots, but I'm saying that we envisioned ourselves as like these American heroes that we were going to do this great thing. And this is where a lot of people misunderstand extremist thought and ideology is that a lot of people think that the guys that are doing this stuff are just doing it because they hate everybody, and and it's all based on hate. Hate is there. I mean, it's and it's developed and it's fostered in the movement. But it's the majority of the people that are involved think they're doing something that's truly good and noble, and they they absolutely believe that. If you had asked me when I was in the movement, you know, are are you motivated by hate, or are you, or, or even do you hate? I might have said no. Human Life International. Had a big
6: conference in Minneapolis, and that probably would have been '95 or '96, I think. They were like very anti-gay, anti-queer people, and they were also anti-choice, and they were also like pro-patriarchy. Them coming to coming to like have a conference and organize in our city was similar to like a neo-Nazi their fascist organization coming to our city and that they should be confronted. I mean, the other thing that was going on sorry, I know, no. in the 90s around abortion is there was, I mean, there were literally like, they were, there were bombing clinics and murdering doctors. Like it was really like a fascist movement to stop reproductive freedom for women and really try. And I mean, in a lot of ways, they were very successful, in that they, through legislation, organizing, and terrorism, they've incredibly limited women's access to abortion across this country. Um, For, I mean, honestly, like, the incarnation of ARA, it had maybe gotten a little bit dormant. Some people had moved away, Um, and then, well, we, we did restart, or I helped restart kind of an ARA chapter when... I came back in the two thousands. And then I think again, I think we worked at that time almost exclusively like against police brutality and and then on like queer and reproductive freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, but we actually sort of evolved into at some point I think we were a majority in chapter.
3: All the media reports were saying you know, the movement is skyrocketing because Obama's the president. Um, there was growth during that time, uh, for sure, but I don't know that specifically that it was that or if it was a combination of other things that uh, or a combination of many things that were going yeah. on in the country. Um, the way the movement saw it was, you know, the United States was under the Zionist occupational government or Zog, being a black president, Obama was just a, a you know, another person, that was being controlled by the the greater zionist occupation as is basically how the movement would see it not that he was really any different than the people before him the conspiracy theories yes it's very um the underpinning of that is is huge and the like the whole jewish conspiracy thing especially in the nsm it it was unbelievable it was so bad um, that, and and this is a slight exaggeration, but I, I use this as an example. Like you could be sitting at a, a dinner table and someone could spill a glass of, uh, of water or something. And you say, Oh, it's the Jews fault. You know, now that's a joke, but that's just about how bad it was. I can, I can tell you, I can give you an example, a quick one from my own life at one, at one point, I got raided by the authorities. My house had a no-knock warrant. The doors were kicked in and all that um, at like five in the morning, four in the morning, something like that. And I was sleeping and I woke up basically with long guns in in my face and, you know, put your hands up. They did not identify themselves as police. The first thought in my head was it was the Israeli Mossad at my house coming to kill me. Like I had
6: known in the back of my head during the Obama years that the right was organized. Even though I wasn't I spent less time like researching or tracking fascism, but in my head in the back of my head I knew that they were like in their little holes organizing and lifting weights and shooting their guns and like getting ready, you know. Yeah. And at the time we thought like the tea party we were like, This is as wild, <laughs> this place is crazy as we can get it. and then I feel like we've just had four years of every bad part of right-wing America emboldened and ramped up and taking it even further than they had. I mean, there's definitely a connection with Trump getting elected four years ago. And I also had, and I feel kind of dumb about this too, but I guess I just still, I still am a little bit shocked and white people's commitment to racism and white supremacy.
3: Like I didn't quite understand how deep it was. People would call up our hotline or, or you know, reach out to us and they say, well, that line is something Trump said, or this line is something that Trump said, the America first thing and, and a lot of stuff like that. And some people could say, well, maybe it was dog whistling to the far right. There was certainly things that he was saying that echoed a lot of things that the NSM was saying and that we had been saying for years. but uh, it, it it's definitely got some nuance to it because there was things that he was doing also that the movement didn't like, like his really close relationship with Israel, um, you know, changing uh, th- there was I mean, I could I could go on quite quite a long time about some of those different things, but there was people in the far right that liked Trump. But then there's a lot that didn't. As a
8: person of color, it's a part of your life. It's not something you're like, well, I'm political today. You know what I mean? Because racism is something you face every day you walk out that door. My ancestors have been on this land since day one. This is this is a part of my DNA. I'm always going to be anti-racist, whether I like it or not. You know, It's not something I can just turn off and be like, well, uh, I gave up on that trend. Like I said, being an indigenous person in America, people don't know. That, and they don't think genocide really happened here. And it's still happening. The genocide still continues. And people are just now learning about what this government has done to the First Nation people. The more people are starting to understand, the more people are like freaking out because they're like, what the fuck, dude? I thought this was a democracy. And they're finding out and understanding that it's really not if it's built on genocide and slavery. The greatest thing about Trump, he woke up the masses who didn't believe white privilege was real. His ego so big, he didn't fucking care. He was just. He was a poster child for that. You know, like, holy crap, it is real. You know, everybody else is like, surprise. That makes them feel... I mean, Ronald Reagan was the same way. He was Donald Trump before Donald Trump.
0: Yeah.
8: But he had eight years. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, if it wasn't for Trump, dude, shit would still be the same. It honestly honestly would. would. To me, it's an old hat. Like... Yo, welcome to the fucking real world dummies, which is not their fault. It's not anybody's fault. You know, it's like, you don't know, you know, but it's like, it's nice to me. It's like, it's good because things change. Right. So it's like, it's just a lot less violent to to some people. I mean, not to everybody, but for our upbringing, that's just, that's how it was. You know, when we get older, we don't want to, we don't want to be a part of that. I'm not going to go out and try to fight some fucking Proud Boys because they're a bunch of dickheads. You know, those dudes are every day. There's racist people every day. Dude's going to say some stupid shit to me, then what? I'm going to attack him and guess who goes to jail? Me, not him, because that's how the system goes. You know, but change is good, you know.
6: Throughout the 90s, um, around the country, there were different organizations doing catwash programs, kind of after, like, the Rodney King, I think, helped spark that. And there's this sort of idea, like, if we could get videos of police beating up people or harassing people, then everyone would understand, like, how real the racism was. And then we've all been literally watching people get murdered by the police on Facebook videos. So I think there was this whole thing of, like, when is it going to be enough? There was like the Ferguson uprisings and the Baltimore uprising and then the summer in Minneapolis I feel like was the one that actually like sparked a global rebellion and more people actually started to understand or the majority of people started to understand that police brutality was real. Similarly, I definitely got a lot of critiques from Friends And people I trusted and cared about especially back then they would be like why are you wasting your time on these Like knucklehead Nazis. No one cares. And then I think about four years ago people started to be like, oh <laughs> It's a bad idea to let crazy racists like run around doing crazy shit.
3: I Use the example of the Carr brothers, you know, like a, a horrible murder. So we pick up on something like that and go Look, this. Even though murders like that don't happen all the time, and it's not it's not that common, we would make it like it was common to put that fear into people. Like, hey, this could be you. This could happen to your family. We would show videos of of horrible crimes or things like that. Stuff from South Africa where there was a lot of racial um, animosity between people, and and uh, something really violent. We'd pick out those things, and those things do happen, but. We would pick those out and like platform them and to show people um, basically to make them more extreme or to get them solidified into that ideology. Um, uh, What I was saying about 2020 and the polarization we're seeing, it has gone mainstream in a lot of ways. And that's really unfortunate. Large segments of the population seem to be kind of taking on some of these different conspiracy theories and lifting them up. Why why are people from the you know standard um, or like say non-racist right um, your conservatives or your GOP why are so many of them flocking to more extreme ideologies I I don't know We really want to keep people away from extremism because it can it can head to a, a violent place really quick it, A lot of this extremism. Like the example that you made about somebody saying they're ready to give their life for it, I mean, this is pretty common thinking in the movement as well. Um, there was a, a young man I was I was speaking to when I first started doing the work I do now, deradicalizing and disengaging people, and um, it was like it was like talking to myself in the mirror, you know, twenty something years ago. Uh, basically, I, I was saying like, well, let's not talk about the ideology first, but let's talk about The movement and how it could affect you as a person, how it could affect your life. You know, it's for me, it's a miracle that I made it this far that I wasn't, you know, killed along the way or put in prison or or something like that. Um, It's not a good choice to, to get involved in extremism. It's so I was I was talking with him about that. And he goes, let's bring it back to the political ideology, though. He goes, if my political ideology. This is the young man that I was talking to. He says, "If my political ideology is right, if I'm correct in my thinking, he goes, my life means nothing. The cause means everything. I'd be willing to sacrifice my life in a heartbeat." And that's exactly how I thought you, it was. It was really interesting. You know, there's that Those so many similarities. in the the thinking and the thought process with people that have gotten there. So we're seeing this where now you have, like even here in Michigan, where there's these guys that were talking about kidnapping the, the governor and doing terrible things like that. I mean, we could go on and on and on with all, especially the far right and some of the terrible things that have happened or that have been stopped from being happened just this year. It's just, it's almost unfathomable how many, Uh, instances there is it's it's crazy every any little thing sometimes could trigger it and boom somebody can go off and and do something really really terrible so that's why we need to try to off-ramp as many people as possible out of this type of thinking
0: Okay, so I think one of the things I'm really proud of about this episode is the way that we were able to like just get the fuck out of the way and let these people speak. Mm -hmm. Um, No crazy conspiracy theories that needed to get pushed back on. No heady intellectualism that needed to get translated and questioned. Just, (laughs) just cool people telling cool stories.
1: Yep, ones Um, that we can learn from. I just wanted to say thanks, you know, and how much, let people know how much I appreciate folks like Jay and Katrina for reflecting back on their experiences and for putting in that work in the first place. They're part of an older generation of activists whose experience has been invaluable in forming our our current political moment, especially as it relates to these twin cities that we all call home. You know, uh, a lot of these folks in the older generation that were here during those periods of struggle, they took folks like me under their wing and taught me a lot about how these folks organize and what to look out for and um, how best to combat them.
0: Yeah, and I'd like to say thanks to Jeff. He spoke to me for like an hour longer than he said he had time for originally and was really unafraid to go to some tough places. I learned a ton from talking to him, and I wish him good luck on his current endeavor, de-radicalizing people. I'll be keeping an eye on it, and I'm really excited to see what he accomplishes. Everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, A lot of fun. Uh, Next big documentary-style episode we've got is about Catholicism and how it intersects with the far right, uh, both in Franco Spain and in America today. It's uh, really fascinating conversations with Stanley Payne, one of the fascism experts we spoke to in the first episode, whose real area of expertise is Spanish history. Um, And also with Heidi Schlumpf, who is the editor-in-chief of the National Catholic Reporter, who has done a lot of work into the ways that extreme wealth have helped to drive the American Catholic Church to the right. Really excited for that one, and really glad that you all took the time to t- listen tonight. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at patreon.com slash unbalancedmn. Give us some money, please. Um, <laughs> you can also follow us on Twitter uh, at unbalanced underscore mn um, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately and they'll they, uh, they all tell people to like rate and review the podcast which uh, I guess yeah you could do that too But like, tell your friends about us start volunteering at an old folks home tell them about us whatever help us <laughs> spread the word if you got the space for it and we will catch up with you next time
1: thanks for listening You're the
0: seller. Burn up, Wanna spread like a, volcano, a volcano. Left all chest Our bumper music this week was local bands Cat Breath and Atomic Lights. Check them out on Bandcamp and the fictional band The Ain't Rights, performing Nazi punk's fuck off from the film Green Room. And as always, our theme song is Saturday Night's All Right For Fighting by Dan Carroll with Wes Mitchell on drums.